to this week's Ceasefire Now, please, edition of Spin Cycle, the media show that tries to make sense of the chaos that is our 24-hour news cycle, broadcasting from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, lands for which sovereignty has never been ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. I'm Jess Lilly and I'm in the studio with Crikey reporter Charlie Lewis. G'day, Charlie. Evening. And Mianjin editor Esther Anatolidis. Esther, Hello. So, so good to have you back. Great being here with you guys. Oh, amazing. And we're going to be talking to a senior reporter for The Australian, Sarah Elks, who is working on an incredible investigation into gun laws in this country. Uh, it's titled Target on Guns. And I was trying to count how many... Um, articles they've already published just in the last four days and it's something like 11 or 12 pieces. It's the most thorough investigation. So can't wait to talk to Sarah about that. Um, But first, as we have been doing every week uh, for the last few weeks, we want to start with the latest Committee to Protect Journalists figures um, from Gaza in terms of um, number of um, journalist casualties. Last week we reported that their data confirmed at least 42 journalists and media workers had been killed since October 7 in Gaza. This week, uh, and Israel, this week the number has risen to 53 journalists and media workers killed Uh as of yesterday, 46 Palestinian, four Israeli and three Lebanese. They've also uh, added 11 journalists reported injured, three missing, 18 reported arrested, uh, as well as multiple assaults, threats, cyber attacks, censorship and killing of family members. Um, Included in the CPJ tally over the last week is Palestinian journalist and press freedom advocate Bilal Jadala, who was killed by an Israeli airstrike that hit his car in Gaza. Um, Bilal Jadala was the director of Press House Palestine and actually provided indispensable research for CPJ's 2023 report, Deadly Pattern, which tracked the killing of journalists over 22 years by the Israeli military. CPJ is always is also investigating numerous unconfirmed reports of other journalists dying, missing, detained, hurt or threatened. Um, so we, we were just going to continue to publish or to mention those figures at the beginning of every show. Um, from now on in, it's just horrific. It really is. And thanks, Jess. It's so important that we do this. Absolutely. I mean, I think we... Um and this is not to diminish the the issues that Australian journalists often run up against in terms of trying to do a, a decent job of uh, holding power to account in this country, but it, it does put a lot of things in perspective when you are confronted with with those kinds of statistics and, mm. and that kind of understanding of what people are willing to put on the line to um, what is sometimes flippantly called, but I think actually is is quite a good way to describe it, the first draft of history. Mm, and I think a lot of people, um, a lot of our listeners would be getting a lot of information from journalists who are posting as well as, yeah, as well yeah. as um, you know, doing posts and reports for international media um, are also posting as much as they can to their own social media and it's, it's pretty incredible the amount of work they're doing. On... A more positive note, Esther. You, we. It was pretty amazing just then. You were FaceTiming your dad in Greece. I was. 
<laughs> and I wished that could be our whole show because there was something just beautiful about it. Talking about the olive oil harvest. Now, this was not something that we intended to talk about, but literally 60 seconds before the show started, <laughs> you were checking it on your dad's, uh, checking on the progress of the olive oil harvest in Greece this year. And I'm like, do you know what? This is now an international media story that's in spin cycle must cover. So, Esther, what's happening with the olive oil harvest? Look, it's actually been uh, the topic of much um, agricultural but also political and, and economic discussion in Greece. Obviously, we've had a terrible summer with, you know, weeks and even months of above 40 temperature and so great worries about um, the harvest at all. There were um, disease and other issues in Italian trees, um, and so certainly for my parents, the understanding was it would be a smaller crop, while at the same time we've seen olive oil prices skyrocketing mm. all over the world. But the backdrop of this is um, for some years now there has been um, a really problematic, illegal global trade of fake or counterfeit olive oil, which you just, I mean, wow. you know, it sounds like the stuff of, you know, comics and B-grade films. But I don't know, oil... Liam Leeson could probably try his hardest <laughs> to make that exciting. <laughs> there is, um, there's the watering or oiling down of oil, there's the fake labelling, yeah, um, yeah. there are, um, you know, there are oil barons getting rich on this in you know a, a number of continents and so uh, the European Union and other countries have really kind of cracked down what on... What does that mean for smaller producers like your father? Well, my father um, takes um, his olives to a local co-op, um, which is a community-owned press, um, and then the oil is pressed. And because of the um, very traditional non-cash way in which a lot of um, this kind of work happens in countries like Greece, um, labour is exchanged for a share of the press, you know, a share right, of, of, yeah. of oil. Mm. And so... Um, um, the uh, oil will be pressed um, often, you know, the day after the harvest. And Strati was, my father, uh, this is very important information, Marie and Mary, if you're listening. Um, <laughs> Strati was just saying this is one of the finest quality uh, presses of oil they've ever had. Amazing. And he's going to try and keep me a barrel. I don't know how I would get that <laughs> into Australia. Um, but from being desperately worried all year, um, I was trying to comfort my parents by saying at least, you know, olive oil prices are high, you you know, they'll, they'll still be an, an income from this. Oh, hello, Maria Sorinidis. Maria Nitsolis, I'm sorry. She's entered in the in, in the, the former name, says, ha-ha, I am listening. Uh, so, <laughs> Breaking news. Brilliant. We're she doing well with the Hurstville, the South Hurstville, Sydney demographic with my <laughs> fabulous cousin. Hello. Um, yeah, we had Theo Strati here live on. Uh, I've only just after 15 years managed to uh, have my parents put in an internet connection and I'm still... Well, you had to actually go to Greece to do that. That's right, I did. Like, that is... I love that. That's like the greatest child responsibility ever when your parent is, you know, a little bit um, useless with technology. Esther actually went across the world to give them the internet connection. Oh, look, useless with technology, <laughs> but my father is a master craftsman in wood. Mm. He is an extraordinary artist and maker and... Um, 
uh, it's just remarkable that the interest that he's now shown in wanting to really get this right. And so I quite love then being somewhere else and, and giving them that, that sense of what's happening. But my father, you know, both of my parents, um, given the, you know, the, the political history of Greece in the last many decades with a very strong interest in um, um, oppression, uh, colonisation, puppet monarchies, um, when the Queen died, I was in Greece and uh, my father was yelling at me across the olive grove and I couldn't quite hear what he was saying. I finally got close up and I said, Diles, you know, what are you saying? He, was, he said it first in Greek and then and, and he yells out, the Queen is dead. Long live Mabo. Oh, wow. And I wrote a piece for Neil Cosmos entitled, The Queen is Dead, Long Live Mabo. Oh, and wow. then this year I was there on referendum day. Of course, I'd already um, early voted. And when the results came in, my father just shook his head and said, this will happen. This voice will happen. Mm. We've got, um, you know, a range of political forces who are, who are holding it back. But Thavrunto um, Belatus, uh, <laughs> as we say in, in, in Greek, Ithatus Phaitos Kotadi, they will recede into a darkness um, and the voice will be heard. Oh, I, that is amazing. And I am offering... Uh, my own free labour to next year's olive picking season. Brilliant. There <laughs> the you go. Ladies, I want to be there. <laughs> <laughs> All sorted for next year. Melbourne's own Triple R. Now, last week we... Um, oh, before we go into last week, yes. um, there, is a, a, th- th- there was a, a kind of a segue between the, the two things that we've just talked about, which is that there is a charity, Olive Kids, and um, others working with um, um, that, that notion of olives uh, for the Middle East um, who raise money to look after and support Palestinian children right now. So I think that's one we should all... Or look out for. Amazing, yeah, Olive Kids. Um, so we are going to just sort of have a little bit of a whistleblower update. Last week we talked to Eddie Lloyd, who um, is very good friends with um, David McBride, also a lawyer and past politician, and spoke incredibly passionately about um, the situation that David McBride finds himself in at the moment, being prosecuted for um, information he leaked to the ABC uh, from his time as as a, a lawyer, defence lawyer with the Australian Defence Forces. So um, in terms of uh, uh, an update on that, um, Esther, in the next Mianjin, there's going to be a piece from Kieran Pender, who is the founder of the Whistleblower Project. Yes, at the uh, Human Rights um, Legal Centre. And so he's got a piece in uh, the next Mianjin, which is out on the 1st of December. And uh, the piece is called Lowering the Cost of Courage. So what are the things we need to do to make sure that whistleblowers aren't only protected when, you know, um, when when, uh, they get into the dire situation um, that um, uh, David McBride and um, uh, Richard Boyle find themselves in. But even before that, we have a culture of supporting this. We have some kind of independent body, just like mm. um, a corruption commission, um, that's that's right there. Because as, as Kieran points out, of course, if truth is the lifeblood of democracy, whistleblowers are its lonely warriors, but that doesn't have to be the case. Yeah, I mean, I think a, a worthwhile point of sort of raising is that um, we, we've come out of, a, of, the, of the Morrison, of, of the Abbott Temple Morrison era, which was was 
specific was was genuinely quite dreadful for for disclosure and for whistleblowers. Um, we had uh, when Labour was uh, elected last year, they quite quickly put an end to the prosecution of. Um, Witness K and his lawyer, Bernie yes. Clary, the, the, the um, investigation officer who blew the whistle on the um, the surveillance of the East Timor government during negotiations over the, the resources in the East Timor Sea back in 2004. Um, they've, just in this last week, there's been quite a lot of uh, fanfare coming from the government around their, their strengthening of shield laws, which I, which I, I want to say, actually, before we get into this, you know, is genuinely a shift in how the the government of Australia has approached these things and is genuinely to be welcomed. Tell us some more, Charlie, about what that would mean. Well, well one, thing, one thing it ought to mean is that someone like David McBride, who at the time this negotiation, this announcement was being made, um, they could have struck out his prosecution with a stroke of the pen, as as they could for Richard Boyle, for example, the uh, Australian tax office, tax office um, whistleblower. Um, that that information, I think we could all agree, is was released in the public interest. Even if, and I think it's also worth acknowledging that there are some complicated sometimes circumstances, uh, circumstances about and, why and motivations behind why that information mm. comes out. Um, and that's something that the prosecution in David McBride's case, for example, made quite a lot of hay out of. It doesn't really matter in some ways why that information becomes public, whether it's of public interest. And I think, for example. The basis for the Afghan files, the argument behind Berriter, the, fact, the Brereton report, and the Brereton well. report, the idea that Australian soldiers may have been committing war crimes. However, that comes to public light, that doesn't, that shouldn't really matter about whether we should know that's happening or not. It's such a good point because we think of the not just the burden of proof, but the um, the kind of mitigating extenu- extenuating circumstance in certain kinds of trials. You know, well, was this defamatory? Ah, but they intended this and they had yeah. this, uh, you know, this this seething contempt and there was all this resentment and mm-hmm. and so on. So they clearly set out to defame mm. this person. But absolutely, when we're talking about matters of strong national interest that's about democracy, that's about the way that we conduct ourselves in war, then surely the motivation is irrelevant and that is, um, that's another strong reason for having some kind of independent body whose processes are, are, are different to um, the the burdens of proof but also the, the, the processes um, and the defences yeah. Yeah, of the court. Prosecutorial, prosecutorial is the word. There's a word in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, um, method of absolutely mudding the waters and also character damage. And yes. you know, it's it's a it's a tried and true method in many kinds of courts and for many kinds of reasons. But there should be with with this kind of with whistleblowers whose um, the information that was leaked um, has then gone on to you know have such a huge impact it shouldn't be the standard those standard methods oh, are acceptable right. in a prosecution you know there should be a different sort of approach entirely really yeah yeah and i think also just i mean like maybe this is, is sort of tangential but i think it's really key i remember and i won't give any details um but i remember talking to a colleague of mine about someone who had come to them with some very important information that ended up being this, the basis for quite a big series that cranky did and he got very emotional talking about this because he said it would have been so easy to not 
believe this person. Yeah. Because they ha- they had been they were de- so badly treated damaged. by people they trusted. They, mm. they, they, were, they were wounded people, and that's part of the reason they came to us in the first place. And those people don't always articulate themselves in the most perfect way. They don't always um, have the most wonderful uh, conjuring of internationalism or various moral precepts behind why they do this. Part of why they're doing it is because they've been destroyed individually, because they're hurt individually. But and, also, and that shouldn't really that shouldn't impact on why mm. on whether we think it's credible that they gave it to us in the first place. And that's the issue. Yeah, but also, credibility. Like, if you look at this, the incidents of David McBride. If you look at Robo Debt Whistleblower, if you look yes. at any of that, they were just doing a job within the institution that they worked for. You mm. know, David McBride was a lawyer with the army. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like he, he was a guy. He's not a raging, um, soft, soft-hearted lefty. No, <laughs> and he was as as Eddie said last week. He was a true believer in that. Yeah. You know, so guaranteed there is probably things that he believes in that might not sort of you know sit well with a lot of people. But the fact is, he got to a point where he felt like he'd seen enough that he didn't feel sort of morally comfortable anymore keeping that to himself. It was the same with um, that fantastic uh, series that Rick Morton did for 7am Whistle While You Work on Robo oh, yes. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, I can't remember her name, but she was just dynamic to listen to, the whistleblower. Uh, Rachel Miller? No, not oh, Rachel. Oh, no, no, sorry, no. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, who worked? Um, who worked? You know, for the government in um, it, the, and when she talked about how, and the same with McBride, and the same with every whistleblower story. It's like all they did initially was say, "Oh, you know, I've seen something wrong. I'm going to report it internally, and then it'll be dealt with." And when they're met with, you know, a, a wall. <laughs> and a refusal to engage and then they're like, oh, okay, that's weird, I'll just take it above and then again they're met with the refusal to engage. It's, mm. you know, there is, there must be a huge unthreading of all your belief systems, of everything that you'd, you know, you would just been oh, getting God, up and yeah. going to work every day yeah. Yeah, and then and, suddenly and it's like, well, actually, what the hell? I'm in, I'm in a, you know, vortex. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and, and, like, and like as Eddie told us last week, he was, seeing counsellors who were telling mm. you, yeah, it's all in your mind. Yeah. Like, like it is it is on every level an unravelling of your understanding of the world. Yeah. Oh, God, and it I, would and be. Think... Like, you're talking about this thing that is of critical national importance and people would just be responding to you as though you were saying, hey, I think the photocopier might be paper jammed, <laughs> uh, it's like, which no, no, was, you know, a real experience up. we had this week in joke there. Um, <laughs> but, again, quoting from um, Kieran's Pen- Kieran Pender's piece in The Next Meangen, he says, a significant missing piece of the puzzle is a dedicated body to oversee and enforce whistleblowing laws and support whistleblowers. The mm. idea has a long lineage, first recommended by a parliamentary committee report in the 1990s, then again in 2017, and, and he goes on. And it's not just about having those different processes, but it's having the expertise there, exactly as you're both saying, to support people who are, you know... You're not whistleblowing as a first port of call. You're whistleblowing because you're Mm. completely at your wit's end. Mm. You're a bureaucrat that's deep in there to have seen this, meaning that you've got that mindset most likely and that kind of, you know, really that, that formal, strong emotional intelligence. And you're just, you've, 
you're close to derailing. You need someone to take you seriously because it's not a minor issue. Yeah, it affects yeah. us all. And I think it's worth noting that um, Australia is really behind the world in terms of these sorts of protections and that sort of independent body. I mean, in America, you know, um, there is, I can't remember what it's called, but there's an independent um, whistleblower, you know, national, like a whistleblower body. I don't know what it's called. Um, but if you once you've reported to them, you are then covered for legal fees and, you know, there's a, 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 it came up in the documentary about Elizabeth Theranos, but it also um, oh, yeah, yeah. came up yes. in a conversation. I saw Kieran recently, a couple of weeks ago at the Purpose Conference. Um, he um, was on a panel with Desiree Fixler, who was a whistleblower for Deutsche Bank. And, um, you know, she ended up having all of her legal fees covered. And in America as well, especially with corp, if you're a corporate whistleblower, you can actually um, claim a percentage of the costs that are eventually filed against the company if your Amazing. Um, yeah, accusations are upheld, which can go into the millions of it's, dollars. It's so weird. <laughs> Whenever I look at like the, especially in the United States, the legal situation there, where it's like, yeah, if you try and join a union, your boss can close down your entire workplace and that's fine. But, like, you can write pretty much anything and you can't be sued for defamation. And you're defamation. Like, it's... it's yeah. Free it's, speech, again, ladies and gentlemen. Is, it, well, actually, genuinely, that's the thing. Yeah. Is, that, is that very, very high in their national idea of what it's important and what is, what is useful about being from the United States is free speech. And there's a huge amount of... As a result, protections that no side of government would ever go against. Oh, that's oh, they, right. They might, they, they, you know, they might, they might attack it in the in the press, but they would never ever try and undo it. Whereas, yeah, <laughs> there are other things that are just so unbelievably broken about that place, which well, is that's fine. Right. Because in Australia, we pride ourselves on having these really, um, you know, fine, upstanding national. Uh, political institutions like the Electoral Commission. You know, it's yeah. one thing we can look to the United States and say, wow, how can you claim to be the bastion of anything democratic when there is no consistent, coherent national way to vote? You know, it's mm. Um, mm. Uh, let alone uh, the fact that it's open to the various conspiracy theories. So we've got an Electoral Commission. We've got a number of other important public institutions. We've now got a National Integrity Commission. We absolutely need a whistleblower body. A hundred percent. Let's not forget, though, that um, certain people in Australia were very keen to get um, conspiracy theories going about our own electoral commission. Well, uh, I that's feel that right. might be worth just taking a second. Oh, and, and, and it's nice to know that it doesn't really work over here. Lisa hasn't yet. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Did it, though? I mean, a fair bit of that was taking hold. And um, I mean, around the, the campaign, around the voice and mm. other matters. So the electoral commission had to come out and go, look, mate. Uh, <laughs> But then uh, we also the had the um, and well, that's right, that's <laughs> right. But then we also had the um, oh, um, what was it? Um, the trying to dis- oh, when when the head of ASIO had to come out and sort of wrap the opposition leader over the knuckles yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and say, uh, no, you can't just bring national security matters uh, into yes. mm. uh, this whole narrative of wanting to. Um, you know, poison people's trust in democracy and public institutions. So, I mean, I think the voice campaign showed us that people were susceptible to it. Um, I mean, it's very, it's very, uh, very hard to say, isn't it, with the, really with the voice campaign about yeah. what it is that 
that actually led to the result that actually ended up happening. I, I, I don't know for sure that the AEC stuff actually really... No, I don't think it made much of an impact. I, yeah. No. I think there are other 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 yeah. factors at work, shall And a say. lot of credible polling on the fact that people were genuinely confused. But yeah, 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 yeah absolutely, yeah. Radio... So some of our astute listeners might remember Sarah Elks, who joined us back in June to talk about her wild investigation into the many lives of Warren Inch. She's back with another incredible and much more sombre investigation, but um, a really amazing investigation into gun laws in this country, in the Australian. Sarah is a senior reporter for The Australian in, in its Brisbane bureau, focusing on investigations in politics, business and industry. Uh, has been nommed for four walks. <laughs> four walk lease. What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> I'm, I'm doing my little... This is, this is the language. This I'm is the doing, business. I'm doing the chill zone chat. You've when, not been nommed for a walk. Do you walks. know what? We're, the walks is on tonight and, no, we have not been nommed, so let's keep moving. <gasps> I'm shocked and appalled. Uh, Sarah has covered elections, murders and other disasters over 15 years at The Australian and over the last few days um, the investigative team of Sarah and Ellen Wynette have had no less than, I think I counted 11 pieces, but I could be wrong, uh, published in The Australian under a series titled Target on Guns, um, a really thorough investigation into the country's gun laws. Sarah, hello. Thank you for joining us. Hello, Jess. Where are our walk noms? Come on. <laughs> Babe, you're going to get some more walk noms from this, surely. <laughs> Oh, I don't know about that, but I th- and I think it's been twelve stories this week, which means my brain is dribbling out my ear. But we'll see how we go. <laughs> I think you're you're in good company there, Sarah. So it's fine. <laughs> I'm I am really interested to hear about the genesis of this investigation because whenever we hear about a terrible mass shooting or gun related incident overseas, you can count on the third or fourth social media comment crowing about how Australia sets the benchmark for you know, internationally for gun ownership laws. Why did you think this was a topic worth looking at in such microscopic detail? I think that's an excellent question. And I think even though we are doing an investigation about legal gun ownership in Australia, it's worth noting that Australia's gun laws are, you know, are the envy of the world and for good reason. They came in after the 1996 Port Arthur massacre in which 35 people were killed by somebody who owned their guns legally. Um, but I think, you know, it's been... Um, it, it's, it's been more than two decades and some of those agreements that were made back after Port Arthur, some of those reforms that were supposed to happen then still haven't happened. Um, and the reason that we're looking at, at it now in Queensland is... Nearly a year ago, there was an awful um, tragedy at Wyambilla in southern Queensland where three people who we now know were religiously motivated domestic terrorists uh, murdered two police officers and a Good Samaritan neighbour using guns. Some of them were legally owned, some of them were illicit firearms. Um, And so that sort of sparked a new political push for a national firearms registry. And what that is, is basically like an online database where police from all over Australia 
can quickly go on and check to see, hey, I'm in Victoria, this person's from South Australia, have they got a gun licence and what registered weapons do they have? And you would think, like, how difficult could that be? Don't we already have that? But you'd be surprised to know that we do not have that. It's not that easy to check for police officers to check across um, state boundaries what the situation is. And partly the problem is that each state's registry, including Victoria, um, they're all a bit sort of slow and paper-based and people are individually filling out forms and then it takes somebody else six weeks to enter that form into the system. So it's a bit um, Mm. slow and antiquated and there's concerns that it's unsafe. So we've been looking into that and then that kind of spawned a whole heap more stories about, well, are our gun laws as good as they could be, I suppose. I think what's really um, fascinating about the series is that it weaves... Obviously, it did start with an in, an incredible piece on those... Um, the the train siblings and the Willoughby um, murders. But then it weaves um, very gut-wrenching personal accounts of the impact of gun violence through with policy conversations, um, analysis around lobbying, and then um, sort of talks to as well the resistance in some quarters for a gun, a national gun register. Can you talk a little bit to the lobbying that you've come across um, that is pushing back against more uh, laws where it comes to gun ownership? Yeah, so I think there's um, a very sort of a small but vocal minority of legal gun owners who are very determined not to have any further restrictions placed on their gun ownership. They argue, and they have a point, you know, that the vast majority of people who legally own guns don't do anything wrong with them. You know, farmers need them on the land to do their jobs. There's people who like going to... Um, a shooting range on the weekend and target shooting. There's other people who like hunting and they don't do anything wrong. Um, But then there are people whose business it is to um, import guns or sell guns and there's other people whose, you know, whose passion is gun ownership and uh, those people are representing the interests of... I suppose, of gun owners and the gun business and they don't want any further restriction. And though most of them think, like, a registry might be a good idea, they get a bit nervous about the idea of Canberra controlling it. And they won't control it. They will administer a system, but they definitely don't want any further types of guns banned, like we're seeing in Western Australia at the moment. They definitely don't want the introduction of mandatory mental health checks before people get gun licences. Um, and they basically don't want any further infringing on those gun, um, on their gun ownership. So we're not quite an American system where that sort of right to bear arms is... Well, it's not, in, it's not sort of written into our founding document, um, but there certainly are people who believe that um, that their right to shoot should be more re- unrestricted than it is, or should be less restricted than it is currently. Uh, Sarah, it's Charlie here. Thank you um, so much for joining us, and, and congratulations on this series. It's a, it's a really incredible piece of work. Um, yeah. 
Did you, in, in your investigations, did you encounter much, um, I suppose this follows on from what you were just saying, did you, did you encounter much conspiratorial thinking? I mean, I remember a few years back, Al Jazeera released all those tapes of, of someone like Pauline Hanson, for example, suggesting that um, Port Arthur was, was, a, was a kind of government conspiracy to allow greater control of guns. Um, was that something that you kind of came across in the work that you were doing? Well, interestingly, that's a lot of the thinking that motivated the train family. Right, right. Um, so it's a really interesting, sort of a um, strange uh, love triangle, I guess, we've got there. So we've got the two brothers, Nathaniel and Gareth, and then um, Stacey, who was originally married to Nathaniel and had two children with him and then left him for his brother Gareth. And then they've all ended up on this um, remote bush block um, about three, more than 300 kilometres west of Brisbane where they've had this showdown with police. And they were... This was at a time where um, COVID restrictions were ha- happening. Both Nathaniel and Stacey were in the public education system. Nathaniel was a school principal in New South Wales and Stacey was the head of curriculum at the local school in Tara. And both of them uh, pretty much had to leave their jobs because of mandatory um, vaccinations. They refused to get vaccinated, so there was that. Um, And they also believed, um, Gareth believed that Port Arthur was a false flag operation, so similar to what you said, you know, it was all kind of a, a grand conspiracy. And what the Queensland Police believe is that they have this really sort of specific Christian ideology, um, and I'm going to get the name of it wrong, but so I'm not even going to attempt to say it, but basically they believe the end of days was coming, there was an impending war, and they were going to go down in a blaze of glory, pretty much, and then they would be rewarded in the afterlife. So after the police, um, after the, the shooting massacre happened, the police went in and found diaries of Stacey's. They also uncovered a YouTube video that um, Stacey and Gareth had posted on YouTube on the, like, actually after they had shot the police but before they themselves had been shot by um, the special um, emergency response team officers and they were sort of spouting some conspiracy theories. So there was certainly that element there. I've... You know, you, all, you always see some strange comments on stories or social media posts about uh, about gun reform. Um, but, the, the, you know, the sort of faces of the gun lobby that I've spoken to have been, you know, really, really sensible, um, sort of relatively uh, pragmatic, uh, but there's certainly been a lot of pushback about the stories we're doing um, and the level of coverage there does seem to be, and this is from people um, in the garden lobby, they think that there needs to be stories about how people enjoy shooting and it's good for a pastime and 
all of the rest of that. Which and I think that's it that's right true. there, isn't it? Because for a lot of people for whom guns are not part of everyday life and who've been... Oh, it's Esther here, by the way, Sarah. Thank you so much Hello. for... Hi. <laughs> Thanks so much for, uh, for this series. It's so important. The... That sense for many people that this um, insistence around the normalisation of gun ownership just seems very silly, especially when we look at what goes on, for example, in the US. But I think something that your series, uh, the work that you and your colleagues have done, something really important that it highlights is, is the sense of complacency that we've had in Australia ever since Port Arthur and the gun laws that came in afterwards. And I'm sure many people would have thought, oh, no, 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 but we... We fixed all that back then. And there are a couple of things in your reports and in the highlight sections that really stuck out for me. So first of all, the fact that silencers are only banned in Queensland, that they're apparently valid sporting and recreational use reasons for having a silencer. Secondly, that a licensed gun owner can purchase ammunition for any gun, including guns for which they are not licensed. And thirdly, that anyone can walk into a shooting range without a licence and fire a gun, and those guns are not tethered. Um, and so you can shoot someone else or you can suicide, which, of course, has been happening, as as you point out. Um, the numbers as well have just... Uh, I mean, that that chilling quote about, you know, it's like rape, it's going to be someone who you know... Mm-hmm. Um, how much of the motivation behind this work um, for you and your colleagues has been around that sense of complacency that, that Australians have had since the Howard era? I think it is that, and, it, and it particularly um, for my colleague Ellen Wynette, who is a Tasmanian, and um, she was a young reporter in Tasmania at the time of the Port Arthur Massacre, and she We're covered all nodding it in deep understanding. <laughs> on the scene. So she's really been following the um, path of the gun um, legislation reforms ever since 1996. Um, so I, I think for Ellen, well, I won't speak to, for Ellen, but I suppose I will. Um, <laughs> she's seen so many promises from politicians for, uh, we were talking in the office today, there's, there's, we we found maybe three or four different occasions over the years where they all said, yes, we definitely will have a national firearms register. It's essential. It's life-saving. It'll, it's unbelievable um, that there isn't one. Mm. I mean, right? it's yeah, gobsmacking. Yeah. I know. Well, we were... Um, like, I was quite staggered. I'm based in Queensland. I was quite staggered to find out some of the problems with the Queensland system, like that, that it's actually written into the regulations that a gun dealer's got to... Hand, basically fill out a form, send it by registered post to the weapons licensing branch whenever someone's bought a firearm and mm. that may not be updated in the system. That person has a firearms licence, so they're legally buying it, but the details of what gun they've bought might not be in the system for, according to um, the Shooters Union, for up to six to eight months after they've bought it. I mean, that's outrageous. It's and it's just a bit based. of paper being sent in the mail too. It's not but, uh, the yeah, registered right. mail, mind you. <laughs> yes, God. well, it's very important that it gets there, thankfully. Uh, yes. um, and then they talk about, you know, that's not great for gun dealers' businesses either because it's a slow system and people don't necessarily want to wait for um, the information to be processed and they don't have... A lot of gun dealers don't have the ability to um, check on a computer system and see if somebody's paper licence that they've handed in to show them 
is valid or if it's suspended. So what we suspect in the case of um, Nathaniel Train, who was the person who had a gun licence, that was suspended um, by the Queensland authorities. He basically illegally crossed the border from New South Wales to Queensland during the COVID time. He wasn't supposed to travel because he was unvaccinated and he drove his vehicle through a um, like an e-gate type thing on the border. He got bogged. He dumped two of his registered guns. They don't know how he got from there to where he eventually was. Um, but... In absentia, the police suspended his weapons licence and issued an arrest warrant. But because they couldn't find him, it was suspended on their computer system, but because he still had the paper copy of uh, his yes, gun licence, mm. he was able uh. to go into gun shops and what we understand is basically stockpile ammunition and the local gun dealers were like, well, I've seen your licence, so, you know, here you go. And that's something that will be investigated by the inquest, but that's clearly not an ideal system that gun dealers should be able to do an instant licence verification Mm. um, for someone anywhere in the country. And that's what this firearms registry, a national firearms registry, would would in theory do if we ever get there and i can imagine the gun dealers would support that because they'd prefer that than having their entire business closed down (laughs) um yeah look there people are pretty pragmatic about the idea of a of a registry i think from the gun industry perspective they want to be included in the design of it because they want to make sure it works in practice which i think is completely fair enough Mm. um and even shooter so the shooters union president who's um a farmer from outside warwick here in queensland a guy called graham park really sensible he was saying um you know if i am across the border and i'm doing hunting for instance and i get pulled over i want that new south wales police officer to be able to check instantly that Mm. i am legally okay to use this gun i don't want to end up on the wrong side of something because they don't have the way to instantly check that i'm a legit person um so yeah it's just a matter of all the states and territories and the federal government getting their acts together and working out who's going to pay for it Sarah, as part of this series, just before we go, um, you also spoke to a lot of um, individual families and people who have been deeply affected um, by um, gun violence um, in in this country, in, dif- in, in Queensland, in different ways. What were some of the things that, that really um, sort of stayed with you? Yes, you're right. Um, well, I've spoken to a number of people who have lost family members due to um, suicide with licensed guns or in the case of Di Benarius, her um, mm. sister, who's very mentally unwell, stole a pistol from a gun club in Sydney and took it home and um, killed their father. And she um, and Di says basically she cannot understand how there is a system that operates where an unlicensed person can um, go into a a shooting range, and this is still the case, and um, try shooting. I'm sure it would be extremely... I mean, it was a terrible tragedy that she was able to steal a firearm. I'm, I'm sure things have changed for the better in terms of that, but 
we still have seen um, a terrible spate of, of suicides in um, gun ranges. But Di basically said this, uh, this murder happened or the um, killing happened 13 years ago and her family is still traumatised. And not just her family but her friends. And she described it as a an emotional tsunami, losing her dad, her dad, Marlon, um, in such a terrible way. And, of course, you know, her, like her sister, mentally ill sister, um, this happening to her as well. So it's just... And that, and that family has campaigned for better understanding of mental health issues, but also a change in the um, New South Wales regulations. Uh, they've not been successful. So even after 13 years of campaigning and still issues around unlicensed shooters in shooting ranges. Um, so I suppose that's, that's been a very powerful element of the series mm. is speaking to the uh, human casualties or the, you know, the, the people who have been left just broken by... Um, the use of legal or registered guns. So Yeah, just to quote yeah. um, a part of your story, it says children, grandchildren and partners are the main victims of homicides carried out by licensed shooters as lawful gun owners turn their registered weapons on those to whom they are the closest. And, I, you know, that's why this series is so amazing because the reality is that, it, you know, we ha- you have to keep making sure that people are protected from guns <laughs> in every capacity. Yeah, yes. I, and I think that there's a real public interest in that, So, and that's what we're trying to pursue in this, um, in this series. We're trying to also... We're really mindful in trying to um, canvas as many views across the spectrum as we could. So yeah, you'll notice course. from reading the series that um, we've been speaking to a lot of people in the gun control movement, but also people in the shooters lobby and academics and forensic scientists and professors, but then also the people who are at, like, ground zero, whose lives have been ripped apart by um, by gun violence. So, yeah, it's a difficult um, line to tread, Um and as I said, there's some in the shooting lobby who um, thinks we've been far too anti-gun. Um, Sarah, I'm but, so sorry. Yeah. I'm going to have to interrupt you because we've just gone right up to the end of our show. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, you're good. Thank you so much for talking Thank to us. So much, Thank, Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you so much, Sarah. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for talking to us tonight. And that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us every week on your favourite podcast platform. And you can follow us on Twitter at Nadge Samble, at Lily Juice, and at The Shuffle Diary. You can also listen in at rrr.org.au via On Demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this.